we're young. I'll tell you, you know, you know, we get uh, a little bit along in age, and uh, I'll say this: uh, with age does come wisdom, for the most part. There are some knuckleheads out there that are lug nuts, and you're never going to change them. Firehouse Vigilance presents the Weekly Scrap, a podcast dedicated to the never-ending fight against complacency. Corley Moore, Firehouse Vigilance. This is Weekly Scrap number one ninety-one. My guest tonight is Chris Nam. He has over 40 years fire service experience and a highly regarded author, lecturer, fire officer, and authority on building construction sciences affecting fireground operations, command, tactics. He has traveled extensively throughout the USA and all over the world doing what he does, and he's been teaching, lecturing for over 37 years. He has the creds. He has the certs. He has the history. He's done the work. He's put in the time. If I even tried to read everything that he that 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 it was involved in what he's done, it would take up most of the scrap. So we'll leave it there and say he is a a very learned man. Uh, Chris Nam, it is my absolute pr- pleasure to have you on as the guest of Weekly Scrap number one ninety one. Welcome, my brother. Thanks, Chief. You forgot to mention he's got the mustache too, so that's the other important thing. So, <laughs> yes, sir, and there's no doubt about that. Uh, is there anything I missed or anything specific you would like to add? No, no, not at all, not at all. Just uh, a humbling, uh, humbling fire guy that's just been doing the stuff for a while and uh, still love the job, just like yesterday. And uh, we'll just roll with that. Love it. Uh, audience, get your questions primed and ready for Chris and myself. It's going to be a good one. If you got building construction stuff. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. Quick announcements. If you want to be a part of the Vigilantes, uh, go to firehousevigilance.com and sign up. It's really awesome. We just had an awesome forum the other night, and we're having another awesome forum coming up next next month uh, where we're going to talk about wall bombs. Uh, so go there. Exclusive swag, exclusive discounts. I always like to hype it. Now, on to the sponsors. The OG sponsor of the scrap, Key Hose. Check them out on Facebook. The Hose Experts. Affordable Drill Towers home of the affordable drill tower and the affordable standpipe prop firefighter owned and operated pump and roll using the affordable standpipe prop. The affordable standpipe prop fits through most classroom doorways for standpipe theory. And then you can roll it into the parking lot and pump it. It comes with six standpipe valves that can be upgraded to PRVs or customized to what you have in your jurisdiction. Call Steve 844-55-TOWER or drop an email to info at affordable drill And then coming up this May, May 21st through the 24th in Spokane, Washington, you have the Riding the Front Seat Conference. Dina Ali, Scott Thompson, Kyle Romagus, Arthur Ashley, and Mo Davis. All that's in about two weeks from now. Uh, so I'm going to show up there just to take some of the classes. Uh, it's not a pick and choose either. You get to see them all. I will be there attending part of the conference. And I hope to see you there also. And finally, Flame Decon. I love them. Show them some love. Flame Decon. Wash yourself. Use Flame Decon. Uh, with all that being said, that gets the housekeeping out of the way. Let me read you some of the comments coming at you already from Dennis Riley. What's up, guys? <laughs> Eric Thiel throwing some rocker horns at you. South Indiana checking in from Leighton Hoxeng. Joey Baxa says, one of the best. There we go. Uh, three bugled firefighter checking in from Naptown. Got my own paper. Let's get it going. That comes from James Mitchellisco. All right, man. Tons of it going on. Cool. Uh, Rob Fisher said, good evening, Corley, Chris, and everyone tuning in. So there we go. We're off to the races. Chris, uh, I always ask my guests, you know, what do you want to talk about? What are we going to discuss this evening? And, of course, I knew it was going to go down a robot hole of of building construction without a doubt. (laughs) 
Uh, but I, I I love the topics you said. The impact of the built environment and buildings on today's fire ground decision making operations. It's kind of the first topic that came, and I'm throwing it at you. And you can go whatever direction you want with it. And I will. So you know, I'll I'll start off by saying that. And, and again, I think these are the nuggets that uh, set into motion or the rocks that we end up throwing. It's an evolving fire ground. It's a demanding and unforgiving built environment that we have. And I think more so is that the built environment is developing faster with greater complexity, uh, with greater hazards, greater risks than the tactical models are providing us for or that we are identifying. And then lastly, to sort of throw this out, I think all in all, although we're doing some great, great stuff around the United States or certainly throughout the North Americas, all in all, the fire service is functionally illiterate. And by that, I'm saying we know enough to get by, we know enough to stretch the line, but we don't know anywhere near enough about building construction, the sciences, the effects of fire behavior within the compartments and what we should or shouldn't be doing on the fire ground. We're doing good stuff, guys, and, and we all know that, but we're not at that competency level that we need to be to understand the built environment, those buildings that we are stretching the lines and going in and operating in, around, on top, next to, uh, and then we end up having the adverse issues that have come, come about of which a lot of them are really preventable. So that's sort of my my initial throwing a couple of rocks out there. But sure. it, it's a tough built environment. We're just not getting it. Uh, let me ask you, Chris, uh, it, it, will firefighters ever get to the point you think? Do you think it's attainable that we can get to the point of the knowledge that we need to have as far as that depth? It, it it's attainable, but it's it's a lot of it's a lot of effort. Uh, it's got to start day one going in through probationary school. We're certainly not doing it anywhere near enough justice. But like anything, as we've seen the fire service evolve over the last 20 or 30 years, let's even going back to the 80s when the first professional standards were being developed, I mean, we are still trying to get ourselves out of the 80s relative to content, but at what point is enough or at what point is too little acceptable to put the guys in the streets and work in the jobs? And, and that's the challenge. I would say this, there are some examples in other countries, and I'll use the UK as one, that have very, very robust, very in-depth levels of training, skills, competencies that start even prior to the individual coming on board. They have all of the precursors of what one has to attain before they go to the academy, before they get the job, whether it be retained on the volunteer or the career side, and we've just got to get it. We've just got to understand, for fighting fires in buildings, We've got to understand that built environment. And I think that by retooling some modeling, retooling some curriculum, making it much more holistic. And the other thing that I think we're very proud of, of being able to provide is some better insights on how to simplify a very technical based domain or topical area and not dilute it or water it down, but identify some opportunities to make sense out of a very, very complex uh, topical area. It's much more than the five fundamental building types. It's much more than the half a dozen uh, to dozen occupancy classifications. And it's much more than stretching the line and going in. Nice. No, no. I look forward to all the all the rocks and nuggets and, and boulders that are yeah. going to be, <laughs> Kevin. Uh, all right. There's the first soft toss. And everybody, here comes. Uh, from Dennis Riley, you ready for your first question from the there? We audience? go. I'm waiting in that. <laughs> so he and and first line fire service training LLC wants to know, uh, which is AKA Chief Riley. 
So what do you see as the most significant and dangerous new trend in building construction for the fire service? I think that continues to be hybrid construction. Uh, what used to be pretty bookended in terms of the, the front and the back end of hybrid, when it first became much more identified in the late 1990s, early 2000s, it was more recognizable in terms of what we could identify from the street, from the cab, and even once we got into the structure, I think that we're seeing a much more complex type of buildings that are out there that are not easily recognizable on the size up, on the first due, and even more uh, challenging when we actually intervene into the building. So the hybrid structure that has both a predominant uh, construction feature, but then all of these ancillary and secondary components and systems and materials that still creates a building that does not follow the traditional conventional rules of engagement that all of our textbooks continue to uh, advocate and present. So, and, and I, I'll say the other part of that, I think that the uh, introduction in the expansion of cross laminate timber, and we're also seeing now this new type four construction, primarily mass timber, uh, based upon the International Code Council, the International Fire Code and building codes. Um, it's coming fast and furious. We've seen a couple of cities around uh, the states uh, that are, we saw the start of it up in the provinces of Canada. It rolled over from, from Europe, but we're now starting to see some of this taking place. So it's it's the new heavy timbered, mass timber construction. It's the ply scrapers that I think are gonna come about, but I mm. think the day-to-day -day stuff that everybody very much has the potential of seeing is the standalone or complex commercial occupancies that are hybrid and the variety of other types of occupancies that are gonna be hybrid based. The hybrid base too, and I'll throw this other item in it, as we get into the uh, larger scale, large area residentials, we're seeing much more hybrid construction even in the residential. So the challenge just continues on how to identify this predictability of the building and then match that up to our decision-making and the severity of the incident and figure out what to do in terms of tactics and tactical windows and operational time. So it's the hybrids. That's the short answer and I'm sticking with it. <laughs> final answer. No, I yeah, love final it. Final answer. <laughs> Uh, Rob Fisher has one coming out. He says, and, and it's right along those lines. So I'll go right to it, which is what, uh, brother, who can we, oh wait, sorry, wrong one. Uh, what are your thoughts on the modern mass timber construction, which we just talked about with cross, the CLT, the cross laminated timbers. Do you see this type of construction as being dangerous or robust or what's your, what's your take on the, the. So the majority of that, the, the concepts and the theory behind Two elements. So we've got mass timber, which is a separate building type that's coming about. We have cross laminate construction, which is a component that's part of an assembly, part of a system in a structure. So cross laminate dealing with the uh, cross laminations of these plankings, which gives us either a panel or some type of a, a vertical or horizontal type panel. I see that as becoming the new conventional type of uh, retail conventional type of mixed occupancy, the conventional type of office type structures where we are going to see the, the absence of common Q-decking or metal decking types of components and the replacement of concrete and Q-decking or metal decking and the replacement of that of the CLT. So CLT is economic. Um, it's green. It's It's got the carbon footprint. It's got everything that whatever side of the aisle you're on is advocating, but at the end of the day, it's economical. It goes up fast. It does have some good qualities, 
But here's my personal take is that there are some, and I'm going to be politically correct here, guys. So there are some challenges and based on the, the original testing, like our criteria that was developed and whether this can translate into the real three-dimensional built environment when we have the types of fire intensity and the dynamics that we experience in a building fire that's going to challenge uh, the concepts that the architects the, the code uh, development people and everybody else has been putting out, putting us out. I don't want to say it's going to be any more dangerous than any of our current building and construction types. It's going to be new. And I think the behavior of what we can expect and then figure out what we're going to do, tactical windows, how much time. Uh, there's going to be different types of sensing criteria on how to establish whether I've got a potential compromise or collapse or, or get out of the building uh, criteria. So, there's a lot of uncertainties, but I'm telling everybody, this is coming down fast and furious. We're seeing some of the newer type of podium construction or mixed use occupancies that everyone is experiencing. But beyond that, I think that the day-to-day -day couple of story structure that, that uh, commercial and or business related or uh, office type structure, we're gonna have type two construction with steel framing and then the introduction and the use of cross laminate timber is going to be an eye-opener, and it's already happening in different parts of the United States. But there's no rules of engagement. So everything is, again, predicated on certain th theories and practices. Some full-scale testing is occurring in the uh, uh, in Canada, uh, and some is occurring here in the States regarding some of these aspects, but they're costly. The data is coming uh, forward in a very, very slow fashion. So bottom line, you gotta, you've got to watch and observe what's going on in your first due if you've got this construction going on. You got to talk to the builders, talk to the architects, talk to the uh, code officials, the, the fire marshals, and so forth, and and get as much insight, and then talk amongst yourselves, and then get some outside input because there is no proven track record of incidences we can go by anywhere in the United States and say, hey, how what did you guys do? What did you experience? And so forth. We've got to postulate and theorize a lot of things on on what we're going to do, but conservative and and being much more safety and collapse considerations. There's there's a lot going on here. So it's not an easy question to entirely respond to, but it's coming fast right. and furious, like you say. Right. No. And the, and the blurring of the lines between. Yeah. Well, you know, the blurring of the lines, we we try to I mean, again, fireground experience is 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 developed and fine tuned from what we did yesterday, last month, last year, based upon the buildings, the, the types of fires, the way the buildings reacted. And we, we gain this, this level of predictability. There is no predictability because we just don't know. We, we know that there's going to be certain components and certain uh, assemblies and systems in these buildings that are going to be affected, but to what extent? I mean, am I going to see isolated compromising? Am I going to see something that happens so far removed into the incident, or is it going to occur in such a immediacy based upon the weakest link of the system. And that is the key for any of these, whether we talk about the CLTs or whether we talk about mass timber, the, the criticality is going to be in the, the the smallest component or smallest connection that might have uh, repercussions like uh, 10 dominoes falling. It's going to be something small that's going to lead to something significant in some period of time. And it's going to be a challenge. It's really going to be a challenge. No, no you, you, uh, you articulate it very well. Uh, James Michalisco says, brother, who can we rely on to be advocates for the fire service when it comes to building construction code? NFPA, question mark. What can we do? Lobbying, question mark. 
what do you think? So in all fairness, I think that um, our good friends at the American Wood Council are still doing some exemplary efforts for us. We've got some new people in uh, positions of responsibility, uh, liaisons for the fire service without naming all of them. But I think the Amer American Wood Council, which always in the past may have been perceived as the enemy, uh, because again, they are advocating certain code provisions. They advocate for code changes, um, but they are, in my opinion, going down the appropriate track with the right fire-related professionals who understand the job in the streets and now are the people in, in, in charge and, and involved. Um, there, there are, let me, let me say this, there are a number of organizations which are inclusive of both the fire and the uh, uh, chief officer level associations, the uh, IAFF, the International Association of Fire Chiefs, and then the organizational structures with the special interest groups, whether they the the builders, whether they the 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 manufacturers, the suppliers, um, um, or the standards making organizations. It's a collective effort amongst everyone, and I think the biggest thing we have to do is identify an opportunity for everyone to sit down at some point to talk about these items. You can't just do it within the standards making area because it's standards making and there are agendas there. You can't do it in the code councils when when things are being brought up for vote because that is too far along in the process. So number one, we've got to be informed. As a profession, I think we're doing a poor job of late in getting timely information in the hands of the fire service because we are so distracted having arguments about some things that in the big scheme of things they are more opinionated than factual. They are passionate relative to our, you know, what, what we love about the job and then our opinions. And unfortunately, there is anecdotal and there is empirical. It's the stuff we believe that we've been led to believe. It's the stuff that we've been told from day one. It's the stuff that we see here and then sometimes do. So there's this, this dynamic within the fire service that's pulling us in so many different directions. So UL, uh, all of the activities at Underwriters Laboratory, the organizations, the stuff that Kerber and Madrakowski and that whole staff is doing is meritable. Um, I think the organizations that, again, work with standards, work with the special interest groups are all there. What we need to do is bring everybody to the table, and it's not just once and done. It's going to be something that we've got to initiate, in my opinion, something on a quarterly basis to get up to speed, identify the criticalities, and then work on the things that we need to do. Training, information, um, with the lack of information, we get these things piecemeal. Whether you hear something on, on a show like this, you hear a podcast, you hear something else, you read something, um, it's all over the board. And the biggest challenge is, is that there is a lot of inaccurate information that's even advocated and portrayed by some, some recognizable individuals. But how do you... How do you call out the inaccuracies when they believe they're seeing the right stuff? But in reality, when you look at it from the real, real big perspective, highly technical, different elements, and there's just some wrong things that are spin and down the rabbit hole we end up going. So Right, right. And and, and start spinning tires. Oh, yeah. And, and it's spinning tires spinning in the mud and we get a little traction. We move forward and next thing you know, we get derailed. But it's like anything. I think it's connecting the dots. Today's Connect the Dots are based upon the last uh, couple of studies that came about and what those studies might indicate, what research is suggesting. And 
the one thing I think we have to keep uh, a much more bigger perspective on is we have to understand that whatever is coming out, whatever information is coming out um, from the building construction side, from the operational side, what have you, um, we've got to look at its application on the local level. What does it mean in my particular jurisdiction, in my part of the country, my particular state? And that's the nuances that are going to uh, help identify what we need to do, whether it be in the, in the Midwest or the Southeast or the Northeast or the West or from rural to suburban to the urbanized areas. There's just so many moving parts and differences that it's not going to be one size fits all. Nice. I got a lot. Ton, I don't know if you're excited about it or not. No, cool. some, let's keep going. Yeah. You want to talk, but there's tons of questions coming at you. There's like five. Oh, uh, Leighton Hoxhang says, Chris, in your own opinion, which of the two evils is more concerning to you? The use of ultra lightweight construction methods, i.e. OSB floor joists, gusset plates, etc., or the absurd amount of furniture, plastics, foam, etc., found in normal single family residents that make up the fuel loads. I think uh, we have limited control over fuel load in the compartments. So one of my continued advocacies or promotions that there's there's three primary factors that influence our, our fire ground. It's the building, it's the compartment, and it's the company. Uh, the company portion of it is all about human performance and proficiencies and being able to execute and the variables that are involved at the company level that we seldom talk anywhere near enough about how that variable plays out in our tactics and our operations. So I go back to the other two, which, again, I think aligns with your question. The content part, when we take a look at content issues for what I call the compartment, we've gained some better insights about how to read smoke based upon Chief Dotson's uh, insights from many, many years ago. So it's reading smoke, it's reading fire, it's understanding that compartment's characteristics and what we now call the fire load package. So back in the day, in the 80s and so forth, we talked about room and contents as it related to BTUs per square foot, gallon per minute flow rates, inch and a half, inch and three quarter, targeted GPMs of 150. And we stayed with that all the way up until 2020. So we cannot influence the changes necessary in the content loading and the materials that are going into our buildings. It is what it is and it will continue to go whichever way, everything from something that's manageable to heavy content and everything in between, which creates substantial fire loads which end up requiring us to have a lot more water and, and everything else. So now it goes back to the building component. The building side, again, is what it what it is. Everybody says, well, we've got to outlaw lightweight engineered construction. Well, here's, a, here's the other little nugget in the rock that's out there. So lightweight construction first was introduced in 1959. By 1964, it became codified by the uh, standards in terms of wood dressing. So when the building construction industry, primarily the, the lumber industry, went from fully dimensioned to nominal dimensioned lumber, created the standards for the dressing of that lumber. It originated in 59, but here we are in 2023, still talking about lightweight construction and, and I'll give you credit, talking about engineered construction. So it's been around for a long time. It's never going to go away. There are some efforts there that we can help manage the continued trends of engineered structural systems of which lightweight components, whether they be wood or light gauge steel are impacting our, our operations. So to be to be real, I mean, if we sprinkled our building, provided a greater degree of protection within exposed structures, strengthened up the code requirements in that area, which again have 
political and economical issues dealing with the builders and politicians and everybody in between. Uh, right. It would be saving civilian lives and be saving firefighter lives. So my biggest concern always is on the engineering side of the components, um, the method and the manner in which they are constructed, and the fact that I'm always going to be con concerned about that building's performance because it's not going to perform under any given rules. It's going to be one way on this side of the street, on this particular shift, or on this alarm, and something entirely different across the street based upon some nuances in that structure. So um, you got to, you know, you got to be aware of what's in the building, number one. Have respect for the building, respect for the construction that's there, and have some insights on what you're getting into. I, I always say this, uh, and I'm sort of going a little slightly off track, and I don't mean to do no, so. But one of do. the things, one of the things we got to do, guys, is you got to be invasive. So if you've got multiple occupancies, you've got single-family residentials, whether it be you know that 15, 2,000 square foot residential, all the way to the large area, four, five, eight thousand square foot, or the mega mansions, um, you got to be invasive and open up. Pop the ceiling, get into a, an upper area, get into the basement. Pop the uh, the sills around the side. Pop the the uh, the gypsum wallboard. You got to identify structural features up and around to to figure out what I'm going to do in that structure. And, and again, my biggest concern always is that we've got a limited tactical window to operate um, and just be very cautious. It's not going to be. You just may not have that latitude for recovery, and uh, some bad things end up happening. Roger that. Uh, Samuel Caraway says. Chris, what are some resources? Actually, I'm going to save Samuel's question for a little bit later because it's it's a phenomenal question, and I think it could go for a while. Uh, I want to ask the Vigilante question of the week. The Vigilantes always get to ask their insight questions, and I asked them before when they found out Chris was the guest, and they said, "We are Adam Melk, I said, we are having a boom of tilt slab construction in our city. What are big things to look for, initial size up, ongoing size up, throughout a fire in one of those? And then Eric Morgan, like right on his heel said, along the same lines, Lots of tilt-up warehouses locally, mostly cold storage. Anything specific to watch for collapse-wise, telltale signs, which way walls may fall, etc. So walls are going to fall outward. So be, be aware, be cognizant of collapse zones. It's going to be at least going to be the, the height of that wall on the vertical. But again, I've also seen where the, the tilt slabs have ended up uh, failing and collapsing. There are some, some bounce uh, applications to it, but normally... It's going to be an outward collapse equal to the height in terms of the uh, the horizontal. The biggest thing to look at in any occupancy where you've got tilt up is going to be fire severity and the uh, contact in which that fire severity is coming into contact with a wall and or roof interface. So the 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 integrity of the roofing system and the structural support. So the anatomy of the building regarding either the columns and or skeletal framing system of that building relies on that frame to have the walls come into place. And the weakest link is going to be at that roof line and the connections at that particular area, the, the kinds of moments and the load transfer. So it's the vertical panel coming into contact with the horizontal roof and the manner in which they are attached and connected. And they normally are going to be the most susceptible from either heat and or flame impingement based upon the operability of the sprinkler system. So most of these occupancies require some type of fixed or passive uh, systems in place. The active systems where we have uh, any type of water spray with our sprinklers are gonna help manage, but, but we also have seen 
this whole adverse effect dealing with significant fire load, which goes back to one of the earlier questions. So significant fire load um, theory is, again, the sprinklers are going to be designed to, to deal with that fire load, but the rate of heat release, commodity stores, the other things that might take place based upon where things are being stored that particular day, uh, zones that may be out of service based on either maintenance, PMs, or the fact that the sprinkler company forgot to put them back in service. So it ultimately goes back to the degree of fire involvement within a particular area of the structure, its proximity to the structural framing system, whether it be an internal bay or at the perimeter walls, but normally the failures will occur and even remote from that outer wall, the failures can start internally because I'm weakening up some type of exposed uh, structural systems, usually are going to be uh, type two um, uh, steel construction. And that transfer of loads will end up rippling and, and affecting a couple of bays and then terminating at the outer edge where we end up having the collapse. So um, you've got to be aware. So managing the fire uh, collapse zones around the perimeter, establishing them early so that you're not trying to play catch up. Um, we always try to establish a collapse zone immediately upon arrival at these particular structures because you've got to anticipate that. It's not going to be a matter of, of if, it's a matter of when. And the when is going to come about if we can't control the fire in the earliest stages. So if it starts getting into an all hands, multiple alarm, establish, maintain that rigor and expect those walls to come down. Um, and sometimes it's not it's not because of the flame intensity at that point, but it's also the rooftop units and other systems that are creating additional loads on top of that roof. So we heat up the bar joists, we heat up some of the, the beams, the girders and, and so forth, even in the presence of a sprinklered system. But again, that heat impingement may be enough because we're our buildings are being built without a lot of fat in them. I mean, it's just, again, it's very critical, delicately balanced per code uh, design criteria with those loads, but that, that impact of heat and flame may be enough to weaken the structure causing either a bay or a series of bays and then resulting in the that outward uh, collapse so um back in the 80s and 90s we saw a lot more occurrences of uh tilt for, uh, tilt up construction and when the panels start going there's some great video clips that are still out there that'll show a couple of these panels dropping so there's going to be either an isolated singular collapse of one or two, but uh, again, sometimes it's a series of repercussions where you'll have just that rippling effect of one going down after the other, and then the framing system coming down, and then a significant collapse internal as well as external. So um, these are very common because they're very economical. And I, I don't think I've seen and gone anywhere around the United States, large or small, uh, that is not... Uh, does not have some uh, potential exposure to even a small type of commercial building, industrial building in the middle of nowhere. And they've got, uh, again, maybe a 10, 15, 20,000 square foot uh, commercial industrial structure, steel framing, type two steel framing and uh, tilt slab construction on it. Right, so right. Yeah, it's it's a challenge guys. And it's, it, it's again, it's everywhere. It's, it's the, it's the component of whatever that occupancy is that's supporting the business. So you've got, one type of construction for the office area typically, and then the tilt slab construction for everything else or everything is built by it. And the other thing is that we've gone higher versus smaller. So over the last 20 years, we've seen the height of these buildings increase substantially in terms of sometimes multiple stories, when in fact, in years past, they were somewhat limited up to the 25, maybe 30 
foot mm-hmm. height than some of the industrials. I'm seeing a lot of multi-use buildings that, again, upwards of, of four stories, fill up because technology, the reinforcements, everything has allowed this modern method of construction to create some very unusual buildings. But nobody's writing up about them, and we're not seeing enough being written up on the incidences when they do occur to be able to identify best practices and lessons learned. So it's piecemealing a lot of these uh, little nuggets out there. Wow. No, no, it's a great point. Uh, Great question. Thank you. John Eric Johnson said, question, most of our great incident commanders, such as Chief Turpak, Chief Phillips, Chief Lieb, talk about intuition as one of their biggest decision tools to determine if and when a building is going to collapse. As an incident commander, is there any tips on how to judge when a building is going to fall down under fire? Very broad question, but... It is. So I'll say this, that all buildings are predictable in terms of their performance if you know what to study, if you know what um, to look at and anticipate. So it's broad-based from the standpoint that most of us are trained up to the five fundamental building types. We know our occupancies, whether it be a a walk-up, mixed-use occupancy, a single-family residential, so on and so forth. And as those uh, that you mentioned uh, indicate, um, intuition has a lot to be said about it. But intuition is also a component of training, knowledge, skill sets, uh, a depth and degree of education that is that culminates together relative to that experience. Back in, the, again, 80s and 90s, we talked about recognition, prime decision-making. How is it that that experienced commanding officers, sometimes with, with little data input on the size up, can quickly identify and, and implement the appropriate strategic plan and the tactics that's needed based upon limited uh, building intel. And that does come about through intuition, but it's also built upon everything that we know. It's everything that we also are predicting with some degree of validity. And sometimes it's a lot of guessing, just hoping everything aligns up to it. So the best way to gain that, let me take a step back. So I'll, I'll say this, one of the things that is challenging in order to gain some insights on that or or the application of intuition. Intuition is both a direct and indirect result of of experience. So I can also gain experience by studying buildings, looking at and reading in depth and having a comprehension of after action reports, line of duty deaths, case studies that are out there. So I always use this uh, this, uh, analogy. I do not necessarily have had to have fought a fire in a building of bowstring trust construction. And, and I say that only because it resonates or should or did in the fire service for many years. We talked about predecessor historical repeating events where the bowstring trust meant a lot, depending upon what side of the coast you're on, uh, in terms of hazards, firefighter fatalities. If I talk about the uh, Hackensack Ford fire, which again, continues to evaporate and sort of blend into historical context that a lot of guys don't know what it meant, what it, what place it had in the, in, the, in the job and in the fire service. But yet here again, we, we move forward from 1988 where we lose five firefighters in line of duty death with the bowstring trust uh, to 2012, 2013, and 14. And we continue to lose firefighters because they don't recognize those things that are there. Then it goes back to, again, the training, the experience, the exposure. We're seeing limited opportunities in some areas where we cannot obtain the training. Therefore, I can't get that gut check to tell me whether I'm doing something right or wrong or, mm. or what's these indicators and, and so forth that are there. So 
It's a much broader perspective of gaining intel and insights, knowing the building, pre-fire planning, experiences that we've had, but then it's the virtual experiences through all of the other training opportunities that are much more available to us now than at any other point in time in the past. It's comprehension of what we're seeing because we're all seeing, but sometimes we're not comprehending what it is that is in front of us and, and what it may relate to our operations. So it goes back to training, the experience, buffing fires. I think one of the one of the things that uh, really influenced me many, many years ago was that um, when I got involved in training, one of the things, so I started watching fires in, in neighboring jurisdictions, buffing fires in, uh, in other cities, going to New York City and, and riding down there back in the uh, late 70s, early 80s. The more you can see, not just from the value of this of a, of a great job that's going on and everything else, but if you can be analyzing and start, you know, you read a book and you start going out there and watching someone else's fires because you may not have enough, whether you're on shift, uh, whether you're on a tour, you don't catch a job for, for a couple of tours and so forth. Um, so it's the frequency of what you're experiencing and it's the acknowledgement and comprehension of what you're doing and seeing. So it's a combination of, again, the book learning, the visuals, talking to people, getting this depth of insights and trying to simplify right. that built environment. No, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful answer to a very, very uh, broad question. Um, Dennis Riley coming at you again. I like this one. First line fire service wants to know what jurisdiction do you think is doing the best job in updating their codes to keep up with the emerging trends. And again, that's a, there's a lot of jurisdictions out there, but just in your travels, what what have, who, who's impressed you really? But, you know, that is a that's Dennis, I want to thank you for that great great question because there there is no oh gosh, I, I'm really trying to think of any stellar groups that are out there. I think that there are there's some th good thing being done east coast and west coast and I and I can't say any one particular agency in my mind would stand out. So, you know, for the for the big metro departments, Fairfax, uh, DC, well, so Fairfax, New York City, obviously because of their size, complexity, uh, critical information, the, the kinds of data that they're maintaining. Uh, Boston is moving ahead uh, with some things. LA City, LA County. Um, I, I really, you know, I, I really can't answer that question no, without caveats. I mean, everybody's got pluses and minuses, and there is no one that is a standout. I would say that there are a lot of great metro-sized organizations, and I've also seen some phenomenal one-station volunteer departments in the middle of nowhere that are doing some really good things just in terms of staying abreast of, of the buildings going up, working with their codes department, getting out in the streets, doing uh, pre-fire plans, or just doing street level observations either independently or as part of the formality of the company to try to figure it all out um everybody i would say this with uh, a high level of of confidence is that everyone is strained in terms of the availability of resources and the availability of time to dedicate to that area on pre-incident intel um and then identifying right. stuff in the field at various stages we can get a lot of great data. I think that the data availability, when we take a look at the kinds of um, computer-based information and, and intel that is available, but it's a difference between availability and accessibility and then making it manageable. And I would say that New York City is still probably the best example of a very large, complex urban environment 
that has everything from the super talls to that uh, five-story brick uh, tenement or the brownstones that's doing a good job in capturing that information on the first due so that both company and commanding officers have some building insights to be able to figure out what to do. And now more than ever, that kind of in intel is going to be necessary. So, But we're behind the eight ball. The smallest departments can't manage it, don't have the budget, don't have the time. And everybody in between is, is still between a rock and a hard place. So, right. um, yeah, it's, it's a great question, but um, I, I've got not, I got nothing to really throw that that sh uh, spotlight on. The yeah, no, I, I yeah. want to say I want to ask you and say because there's obviously been changes in building construction. You know, that's that's an understatement. Uh, and then also, as, as time progresses, we're we're bringing in less and less firefighters out of the trades that we're hiring. Oh, yeah, that's uh, <laughs> which so, one do you uh, think is the bigger detriment to keeping up with everything? Like used to, did it used to be, is it because it was simpler back then or yes. is it because yep. we hired yep. so many people? So, from, go ahead. Our, our world was much simpler. So it was five fundamental building types. It was the the uh, the two dozen building classifications. It was the fact that I could I could pull any one of the strategy and tactics books all the way from 1932 to, to current and show you the progression of how things have not changed even, even today. But our predecessors of, of information and the methodologies and practices have always been based upon this fundamental uh, attribute that here's how buildings are are built, here's the construction, here's the methods, here's the materials, here's uh, the rules of engagement that one follows based upon a fire in this particular building type and occupancy type. It wasn't until the 1980s with the introduction and really the uh, institutionalization of, of lightweight construction components and systems did that start changing so from the 80s to the early 2000s we started seeing some some subtle in the first decade of the 80s but then dramatic changes in the 90s and the biggest change that's affecting all of us is that we went from very prescriptive codes in other words i as an architect follow the the codes per the letter that says if i'm going to build a particular resident or commercial building or what have you here's this shopping list here's the recipe Right. And what we got on the fire side was exactly that. Therefore, we understood the construction and we went to our textbooks. Everything aligned and matched up. When we went to performance-based codes, I can now build a commercial building of, let's say, 50,000 square feet in the southeast, 50,000 square feet north, uh, northeast, midwest, or east, uh, west coast. And aside from the environmental-related uh, aspects to it, I can have an entirely different building based upon whatever the shopping list that that architect, the builder, and the contractor, the end user selected. You can literally, I mean, as long as it meets the code, you could build a, a building made out of entirely out of class A materials, right? Paper, as long as it meets the intent of the right. performance of rating. So wow. we have such a variety that's out there that it becomes a challenge. We just cannot... Um, we cannot gain that kind of insight. So we've been working with our, our fundamental building types since 1952. So in 1952, uh, the NFPA 220 standard came out. Or in 52, it was developed. 1954, it was issued. So the first issuance of that, and that's what we utilize as sort of our, our basis of both size up operations, everything in training, our knowledge on uh, building construction out of our textbooks is based upon that five fundamental building classifications and their subsets that have other nuances, but they no longer work when we talk about these hybrid structures. So everything starts unraveling.
Right. And, and we and we got the kinds of issues. How do I figure it out? What do I do? How do I stretch the line? How much time do I stay in the building? There is, guys, there's there's no magic bullet. But the the bullet is 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 really studying more about all of the types of construction, the stuff back in the day, and then more importantly, the stuff today. Our, our biggest challenge is really is going to be on our, and everybody's got this, it's that 30,000 square foot or less commercial building. It's that hybrid structure of a variety of occupancy types, and it's the evolution of that single-family residential. A lot of you guys have large area residentials, and, and many of you guys are, are familiar with the term McMansion, which means absolutely nothing nowadays. And then uh, what we call mega mansions and tetra mansions and giga mansions. We've got homes that, again, are in the 10 to 20 to 30,000 square foot. Some of you guys around the United States, again, have uh, 25 to 50,000, 50 to 75. And yeah, there's jurisdictions with 75 to 100,000 square foot single family residentials that are creating all of this, ha uh, you know, issues to say yeah, the least. Yeah. I want to roll up on that yeah. on fire. <laughs> Holy smokes. Uh, Rob Fisher wants to know, Chris, I'm of the opinion that you can best tell the integrity of a building from the roof stability. I put a company on the roof of all commercial buildings, at the very least for my intel as a command officer. What are your thoughts on that practice? So is he saying that he's able to he's able to monitor stability of the building by the roof? Is that Was that part of the question? No, it wasn't part of the question, but I'll oh. see if he clarifies. So, so just repeat it again. So I got most uh, of it. But... Uh, I put a company on the roof of all commercial buildings, at the very least for my intel as a command officer. You can okay. best tell the integrity of a building. From yeah, he said yes from the okay. roof. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I wouldn't put all my eggs in one basket to rely on determining uh, stability and integrity of the building by roof conditions. So, and there's a little caveat to that. So I, I mentioned earlier about uh, roof factors being somewhat of the indicator when we've got heavy fire involvement in the structure. I would say this: that putting uh, personnel getting companies um, on the roof area does a couple of things. Gives you an idea on the footprint, gives you an idea on other aspects of that uh, of that interior compartment condition, however large or small. Do I have separations? Do I have fire zones? Do I have fire areas? Do I have firewalls? Do I have parapets? Do I have skylights? Are there other security issues? And more importantly, I think the biggest things that we're missing at times, and most of this is in our commercial buildings, is what type of loading do I have on that roof that will affect the integrity of operations down below, whether it be directly underneath that roof or anything that I'm going to have. Um, I, again, I'm, I'm using my hands. I'll put my hands down. Using uh, <laughs> the loads that will end up impacting going down into the upper area. So primarily we're talking about rooftop units, solar units. I mean, any of the designed, undesigned loads that we're going to find on the roof. So that's a critical element, and you've got to fine-tune what it is that the guys are looking at, what's important. So filter out. The stuff that's obvious, zero in on the criticality of significant uh, loading uh, areas uh, or weaknesses. Uh, do I have a roof system that has been modified? One of the biggest things we try to do in most of our commercial buildings is identify whether I've got a primary, secondary, or, or tertiary roof. Again, how many roof systems, how many voids do I have present? What type of separations within those zones are there? Communicate that back to command and figure out where you're operating. Uh, and then sometimes we get, again, get the guys up into utility areas, get them up to the roof, to the underside to identify what type of structural system I may have if you don't know what it may be. Um, but, yeah, there's a great value, and that's a, that's a great, great thing that you're doing because that's what we advocate and that's what we promote. But you've got to, at the end of the day, yeah, you can have the companies up there, but are they comprehending what they're seeing, 
And are they giving timely information to the commander that has value in the operation below? And my only word of caution is that just be aware that when you do feel some kind of, of physical indication or have some type of visual indication of fire travel or heat impingement areas, you already may be to that point where when you feel something or you're seeing something, literally in that next second before you can move to a, an area of refuge, get off that roof, uh, some bad things may end up happening. So just a word of caution on that. He did also clarify, said, I should have indicated this was on a big box commercial, not multi-story. Okay. Not multi-story. Yep. Yep. So, so, yeah, and again, big box, absolutely. So identify any kind of security, uh, smoke hatches, smoke vents, um, skylights in particular, the frequency of their positioning, because, again, all of those are going to be weak points in the orientation. Sometimes if the guys are good, again, again, based on the truck companies going up there, um, try to get a curve cut into the roof closer toward the parapet areas and in any of the divisional corners, identify what kind of roof deck that you may have. And then sometimes, again, selectively get that, um, again, it depends on what's occurring inside, but try to identify roof construction, roof material, and then the number and the orientation of rooftop uh, 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 openings and the location of rooftop units. So that's the most critical. Bottom line is get an idea of where that rooftop unit or series of units are within the quadrants. And then actually the other thing I'll make mention of, a lot of times you'll find uh, utilities and service uh, piping that are, are providing service back into the building are running up the side of the structures on the various divisions and going across the roof. So caution on uh, transversing the roof areas, don't get too far into unprotected areas. Uh, again, deflection, it doesn't take a lot of heat to uh, end up causing some weak roofing systems, but you are, are on the right track. There may be just a few other things to throw in to balance out risk and what you're doing on the roof. So great, 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 great question. Man, there's so much. And, and, and it's just, I know we have a lot to talk about. I want to throw some of yours at you real quick. Cause uh, yeah. Um, this is a four hour show, right? I, I think you could do it easily. <laughs> uh, are there true go, no go criterion? I, I love this. Wow. One that's, all right, so um, I'll, I'll start off by saying this to my my esteemed brother, uh, Mike Agliano, up in uh, in Seattle. You know, he does a, a great, great program on go and no-go. Um, there are a number of performance indicators that one would look at in certain types of construction and occupancies that do lend themselves toward this concept of predictability performance and how and when the building will perform in certain standpoints. Um, there are some go and no-go criteria, but it's also, it's it's dangerous at times to say, here's what you use, because the, the fire ground is not black and white. You've got to utilize critical thinking. You have to have this insight to it. And I'll say this, I'll throw this out. If you're going to use go and no-go, what is the criteria that you're using? Is it uh, heat, uh, is it flame? Is it smoke conditions from the compartment? Well, what's remote? What's what's the primary conditions? There there may be indicators that aren't accurately being depicted of what the conditions are within the compartment. So it always goes back to what is the compartment's criteria in terms of square footage, volumes, the characteristics of it. We use this term RIT. There is both building and compartment RIT, not from the standpoint of saving our own, but relative to resiliency, integrity over time. And when we talk about sizing up and looking at indicators, both at the tactical and the command level, 
there's more to it. There's some more layers to it. So the short answer is that there is no true go and no go, but there are a series of primary and then cascading criteria that one can apply and utilize relative to the resistance, integrity, time of the compartment or the fire area that's involved, as well as the resiliency, integrity, and time of the building that now influence your decision making that might give you more toward the go or maybe more subjective toward the no go. So at the end of the day, guys, you know, we've got to do what's going to be best for the priorities of the incident. We may have clear no, you know, no go criteria, but what is the severity, the urgency and the growth relative to civilian uh, to individuals being civilians in distress um, or that are in harm's way or are trapped? Uh, Regardless of the go and no go, now that defaults back to what I call the most critical element on the fire ground regarding our buildings, and that's uh, delta time. So for some of you, I'll just say go back to a couple of things I posted, I think, um, a couple of days ago on on our Facebook page. So we did a couple of classes. We did some things on the road. Uh, I did a podcast actually a couple of nights ago. I just started remembering that on uh, tactical windows. So one of the things that influences this go and no grow criteria is what I call the uh, elapse of time, the delta, meaning the delta symbol over time, the elapsed time on the fire ground. That has a lot of influence on these factors of building construction, fire involvement, and building integrity, and to what degree we can engage in the building. And then it also ultimately goes back to what I mentioned really early on, Chief, is that it's the building, it's the compartment, it's the company. So I might have a no-go indication, um, and I'm in a, in a rural setting, and I'm looking at my companies, and it's clearly no-go because I, I can't put these guys into harm's way, knowing full well maybe there's something that really needs to be done, but I can't because of the limitations of human performance capabilities of that company. Um, but again, if I've got the A-team that's out there, I'm going to look at my company, I'm, I'm going to know the capabilities, the limitations, the fortitude, all the other stuff, and we're going to go to work recognizing that there's a limited window of opportunity to execute the no-go part of this to support the primary mission, and that is to protect the public. So, you know, no, again, so. there's there's not a lot of black, you know, it's not always black and white. So there is and there isn't, I guess, right, that's right. No, yeah. it, of, of which there are things that are going to relate back to you, your job, your company, your department, where you're located, your volunteer combination career, what's the experience level of the guys riding backwards, what's the experience level of the company officer, what's the capabilities, knowledge, and fortitude of the, of the BC or the incident commander. That that all is part of go and no-go. The simple, the simple stuff that we keep throwing out there in our classes and both online and, and in the classroom is that here's the black and white. Here's this list of go, no-go criteria match it all up, have a nice day. But it may may make sense to one department, but it may make nothing to someone else. And the next thing you know that they're following this bullet that somebody told them to follow and something good may happen, but something bad may happen. So, And and if people want to see those articles or the posts, uh, what's the Facebook group? So go just go to right, uh, follow my name. So it's uh, on the Twitter, it's at Command Safety. On Facebook, just uh, pop my name in there. and you should be able to find it. Google it out. You'll you'll find out some things that you may not want to find out. But I'm on Facebook. I got a couple of Facebook pages. We're on Twitter. Um, and again, there's some stuff that we did across that. We did a podcast on fireengineering.com, Block Talk Radio, this past Thursday night. Uh, that should be in the archives or should be up in their rotation right now. 
talking about tactical windows and some insights on what we just talked about, go and no-go. The old 20-minute rule, the 15-minute rule, the 10-minute rule, the no, no rule at all. And ultimately, a lot of what we talk about here regarding built environment, background tactics and ops has everything to do with the elapse of time. Nice. No, it's beautiful. Um, coming back up to the notes. Uh, I like it. Related to build, uh, yeah. The six domains, the five-star building model, which one would you want to talk about? Uh, well, so let's talk about the, um, so I'll talk about the five, uh, so I'll talk about five-star command, or no, I'll talk about first arriving construction tactics and safety as being a foundation. I'll talk about the five, the five and five. Okay. I'll talk about that. So, you know, here we are talking about building construction. And I think I mentioned earlier, you know, again, uh, built environment is developing faster, all these complexities. Um, there is no one definitive book anymore. I would offer you this. I'll give you one little uh, insight. One of the best books that's a non-fire service related book that's uh, been out there since uh, uh, the 1970s. And actually, I've got my original copy when I was in my second semester in college studying to be an architect. Uh, and that's Francis Ching, C-H-I-N-G, Building Construction Illustrated. And some of you guys may have heard it. There's been a number of guys that uh, got wind of it or have heard about it second, third, fourth hand down. But uh, we've been advocating this for the last 30 years, and uh, um, it's resonating. So it's a illustrated handbook for architects that gives you insights on how buildings are built in a, in a graphic, very easily comprehensible and understood manner. That, coupled with a number of other building construction books, gives you that basis of trying to figure it all out. It's not just, uh, you know, Brannigan's book. It's not the IFSA manual. It's not uh, any one of the tactical books that are out there. It's Turpac's book on size up. It's uh, Norman's book on tactics and operations. It's the NFPA handbook. It's the Society of Fire Protection Engineers handbook. It's old textbooks uh, and strategy and tactics. There's a variety of it, but the real nugget, I think, from a construction standpoint is Francis Ching's book. Now, with that being said, one of the things that we and I personally strongly believe in is that our first arriving, that, that 10, 15, 20-minute window of operation, we talk about the built environment, is predicated on, on a couple of interrelated aspects. So first arriving, building facts, F-A-C-T-S, construction, tactics, and safety. And it goes directly in line with that. I mentioned about the fact that the building and the compartment and the company are so critical that was sort of one founding building block of it. But the next level of that is the integration of construction that influences our tactics, that influences our level of safety or risk. S was the best word that put in there. R didn't match up, but building facts. So nice. So I'll say this, you know, if, if you're going to size up your buildings, if you're going to try to develop some building criteria for go and no go, if you're going to try to develop some enhancements on sizing up buildings using the antiquated uh, and again no disrespect to chief norman but um was wealth seems to be a very common acronym that uh, still exists throughout the united states it's one of the founding aspects in chief norman's book on the handbook of uh, strategy and tactics for company officers coal was wealth actually was developed and was not developed by chief norman but was developed back in the 1930s in FDNY. It was never fully cited. We could never find the exact who and where's, but it originated and was made mention of in the preface of William Clark's book on 
firefighting principles in 1972. We actually went all the way back to 1932 and found some real nuggets of why we're doing what we are doing here today that are embedded in that. And with that, I'm saying that when we look at the built environment, both in the study of it or in the size up of our buildings, it ultimately distills down to five fundamental aspects of a building that I want to either study or I want to apply on the fire ground. So, and this is applicable to any particular occupancy. So of the important aspects of a building that affects us on the fire ground, it revolves around the first item, which is uh, building anatomy. It is the construction of how the building is built. Um, it's the era and vintage in which that building was built with that particular construction system. So era and vintage, and meaning a particular relative time of a decade or a series of decades of the building's anatomy. The second piece is the occupancy type, occupancy risk, and occupancy characteristics. So all buildings have some type of occupancy type, also its type and use, whether it be vacant, occupied, and all the other things. So there's a series of, of cascading bullets that come out of there, as well as what is the square footage, what is the size, is it protected, unprotected? And then the, the theory behind risk is actually associated with the 2007 line of duty death that occurred in Prince Williams County, uh, Maryland, with the loss of life, a line of duty death of Kyle Wilson. So the department responds to a residential fire. Well, this residential fire was in a 6,000 square foot plus single family residence. And however, that residence was no different than uh, a 1,000 square foot bungalow or something even larger. So in the context of Prince Williams County, as similarly with everyone else, we're just going to a job in a residence. But that residence was 6,000 square feet, uh, four times or three times as, as large as what the NFPA 1710 and 1720 utilized in terms of staffing, risk, fire loading, and so on and so forth. So in the after action report of that study, they captured uh, this term of occupancy risk. And one of the things that uh, myself and a, and a, and a uh, special group out of the IFC safety, health and survival section at that time were charged with was to promote the concept of occupancy risk in light of the best practices out of that line of duty death report in honor of the loss of life of Kyle Wilson. That's what, and we've interjected that into our, our methodologies and practice. So there are different types of risk on occupancies that have, again, based on their characteristics. If I have a a residence that's built in 1940, again, going back to the Aaron Vintage, 6,000 square foot, single family residence, 1940. Well, it has a certain kind of construction, certain types of features, performance, and so forth that are entirely different than single family residential occupancy built in 2010 based upon lightweight engineer construction, so forth. So there's just a, a little bit of, of insights on that occupancy risk part of it. So sure. occupancy aspect is number two. Collapse and compromise of structures is the number one issue affecting us on the job because it has everything to do with our ability to work in, around, atop, underneath of a structure. So what are the characteristics of that building based upon its occupancy, based on the construction that are either going to be negligible, meaning nothing, all the way to something significant? The lower end of the scale is compromise that is recoverable, survivable, to catastrophic, full-scale, multiple floors, uh, collapse of a building. So 2010, single-family residential engineer construction, likelihood of catastrophic large area collapse are going to be present versus something isolated. So collapse and compromise of the structure, 
The fourth item is the methods and the materials of construction that went into the building. So the building built in that era of time, 1940s, has a certain method and materials. Quality workmanship, fully dimensioned lumber, uh, nailed connections, uh, other types of carpentry. So it's the kinds of materials that went into that building, as well as the kinds of, uh, it's the material and the, the manner in which the building was built that, guess what, have a relationship back to collapse and compromise. The fifth piece, right. fire dynamics. So fire affects our buildings in a certain way based upon the structural anatomy, based on the material, and all of these things give us a uh, an opportunity to further develop and uh, build upon our skill, build upon our intuition, build upon our experience, but simplifies a very, very complex world. And then out of that, so there's the five, and then out of that, there are five other elements of the building. So one of our, our questions was about working off the roof. The most critical aspect of a building that I need to be assessing um, or having a consideration of is the roof. So it's the roof system, it's the perimeter walls, it is the floor and or ceiling systems, depending upon numbers of floor. It is the characteristics of the compartment, however large or small or series of compartments. And it's also the absence and presence of voids. So again, the worst thing that ends up impacting us in terms of building integrity, operations, is do I have voids in that structure? How large, how small, how small? How will fire communicate, travel? How will it be impinged? How will it affect my operation? So it simplifies this complex world, guys. It just takes it to the five and five and gives us some criteria to work from. So that is just a, a real sort of a thousand foot, maybe a hundred foot level. Of, uh, right. No, it's a lot. Insights on it. But everything I've been talking about over the last 20 years has revolved around the establishment and the fine-tuning of this model. It really, I think once you sort of see the clarity and understand the rationale behind it, it's it's literally like that fog lifting. It provides some clarity and direction and some other things feed right into it without recreating the world. It's it's taking the architectural concepts, engineering concepts, fireground operations putting into the context of the important elements of a building, whether I'm learning about it to study the building. So again, think about any building, commercial building, the things that we just talked about, ask the questions around that five and five. And guess what? If you, if you know what you're looking for and you're getting the right information, comprehending it, there is a wealth of information to, to work the job tactically, strategically at the company or at the, at the command level. That, that's what it were. That's what it's all about from, from our perspective. Um, awesome. Yeah, it's pretty no, cool no. stuff, dude. It's it's it, like I said, <laughs> and and you know this. It's it. You're just scratching the surface, you know, yeah. and and uh, like you said, making sense of it. Um, someone asked, and this was the question I was saving because it's such a broad question, but it ties into the book question I love to ask anyway. And you already mentioned Ching, uh, but Samuel Carraway wanted to know what are some resources you would suggest for a firefighter to learn all about building construction beyond the basics that the academies teach. I have Googled, but I find different answers. What are credible resources? So the Ching's, Ching book is number one. So uh, if you're reading and looking at some things that are out there, I, I would directly say get get a copy of Francis Ching's book. Um, they're available on Amazon. Um, you can buy older copies all the way to the first edition that came out in 1976 uh, that are like $5 a copy all the way to the most current. The more current editions have a lot more information on current engineering, construction, lightweight, uh, both steel, light gauge, steel construction, lightweight engineered structure and components. So that's number one. Uh, I think the best thing that 
a young firefighter, young emerging officer is to get their hands on that is good, credible, detailed, technical information is uh, the NFPA handbook. Uh, and it is expensive, but it has the vetted technical information across a wide gamut of subject areas, which again, has a chapter on building classifications, talks about the NFPA 220, but from their guys and brothers, it, it expands right out. The next level of that is the Society of Fire Protection and Engineers Handbook. Again, they are costly, but they are in the they are the investment that you, as a volunteer or a career guy or gal, um, however large or small, th those are the things that have to be filling your bookcases. So um, beyond that, then there are a series of books, whether it be books on size up, the books on tactical operations, and so forth. I'll say this: there, there, there currently is no one definitive book that I would highly recommend. Um, it is a piece of all of them. And then once you get to that point, then start filling up your library with the textbooks of our historical documentation, getting getting a copy of Emanuel Fried's uh, uh, Fireground uh, Tactics, which is the 1972 edition. Again, if you can afford it nowadays, it's getting a copy on Lloyd Lehman's uh, Strategy and Tactics book. It's going back and getting the copy of the 1932 uh, Fire Chief's Handbook. That Fire Chief's Handbook is probably the most beneficial book that today's commanding officers can get a hand on, a handle on, or a training officer, because it was the, first of all, it was the first book ever written for the fire service, the first textbook for the job in 1932. And in that book, they talk about the concept of opening up the building, which again, when we talk about opening up, those words were coined in that uh, particular book. They also talk about wind-driven fires. They also talk about the value of ventilation. They talk about the best way to, to attack a fire is to find the seat of the fire and operate within the building. So you know, when we talk about where did we come from, that book has all of the bases and the starting points of the nuggets on size up, the importance of building construction, that being the first. And then we get into a whole bunch of other books that actually, Chief, we could probably talk about some great books down the road on, on a full episode on size up and which books to look at. It's Walsh's book. It's Emanuel Fried's book. It's nice. Kimball's books and on and on from there. So um, that's the starting point. Ching's book and get your hands on either a current or a previous edition of the NFPA handbook. That I think is the most value bang for your buck. Awesome. No, I love it. I love it. And you said one, two, three, four, right? I mean, actually you listed like eight in there, but as far as the, the numbered ones, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. John McCoy said, did I miss all the nuggets just joining in? Absolutely. You have, there has been a lot of information drop and uh, you will absolutely have to rewatch or listen to it to catch everything that you've missed so far. Um, now, Chris, we have a thing we do on the weekly scrap. It is known as the five questions for firefighters. We did it for a long time and then we changed it up because we'd done it so many times. All the, all the easy answers and low hanging fruit was taken. So we mixed it up and we're about to change it up again and do the next, next five questions, but we're currently at the next. So the answers are hundred percent your opinion. There is no right or wrong. Uh, the points are arbitrary. They're assigned by me with the help of the audience. And uh, my question to you is, are you ready for the next Five questions for firefighters. I am. Go ahead. <laughs> All right. Here we go. Number one, what single characteristic makes the difference between a run-of-the-mill firefighter and a top-tier go-to badass firefighter? KSAs. Knowledge, skills, and abilities. KSAs. Elaboration, or is that it? That's it. The, the, like because, it. again, there's some interpretive elements of that. There's some subsets to it, but... 
knowledge, skills, and abilities. And from there, to be to be that guy, you got to have all three, and you got to have passion. The other part of it is heart, but that's the abilities. And there's some other pieces that come out of it, but you got to have your head in the game. And it all goes back to proficiencies and competencies that are part of knowledge, skills, and abilities. And the other part is the heart. And actually, you can't gain knowledge, skills, and abilities unless you have the heart to begin with. So you're going to be a run-of-the-mill guy. You might have a little bit of this, a little bit of that, but not nearly enough of it all. So KSAs. KSAs and the heart, and boom, you've got it. That's a stat. There's a lot of stuff in between it, but that's the starting point. That's the formula? That's 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 part of the uh, elixir. <laughs> right. Rob Bagger said, my brain is melting. Huge compliment. Definitely going to have to rewatch, listen several more times to absorb all this. There's been a lot, man. It's been oh, yeah, uh, high-level high dump. I mean, it really has. Uh, number two, if you could go back in time and give yourself one piece of advice <laughs> as a rookie, what would it be? You know, I, I I had some opportunities very early on in my career that set me entirely in play, into the direction and trajectory, and that was um, that was a quadruple line of duty death uh, mm -hmm. right in our region. That that set me directly to where I am today and influenced everything. So I really can't look back because I, I had that moment early in time. Uh, I think that for the general guys that are out there. And I say, and I, when I say guys, it's a New York thing. So no yeah, offense to anybody no offense. It's not gender based, but it, it's used guys. Um, <laughs> I would say just um, so if I was to go back, I, I would just take a look at the the delicacy of what the job is all about, and uh, be cons utilize conservative bias and critical thinking. Be more conservative, um, and just understand how how delicate the job is and how delicate the balance of risk versus what we need to do every day that I learned the hard way I had five near misses early on. And I think that's probably my nugget. Go back in time and just be a little bit more cautious versus the fact that you think you're invincible and uh, you're really not. So that's, that's number two. Right. And how many of us think we're invincible when we're, when we're, <laughs> when we're young, I'll tell you, you know, you know, we get uh, a little bit along in age and uh, I'll say this uh, with age does come wisdom. For the most part, there are some knuckleheads out there that are lug nuts and you're never going to change them. And they're the guys you want to run away with. And um, but I, I think it's just, again, just just be aware of how delicate everything is and just be more conservative while maintaining that aggressiveness of the job and the passion for the job and, and wanting to do it. But balance it out a little, guys. Balance right. it out. Number three, what is your favorite training drill? That that's a tough one because it's a it's a combination of uh, doing uh, roof work or a combination of smoke diver type based uh, breathing apparatus uh, skill sets and reps mm. and so forth. So uh, I always loved uh, really pushing the envelope on doing search and rescue. I was a, a grad of the MIFRI Maryland Fire Rescue Institute smoke diver program back in '82, and I always loved it. We uh, we had the best times, and so yeah, uh, search and rescue or, or roof uh, roof ops. Love it. No, I absolutely love that. Uh, I, my, I, I do love physical gear workouts. I still do, uh, man. And, and just, uh, the search and rescue always, 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 uh, connects with me. Uh, absolutely love that answer. Max points. Um, what mistake have you learned the most from in your fire service career? Pushing the envelope. 
I, I think that uh, mistakes when you when you push the envelope, there's some repercussions directly, indirectly, and without getting into too many details. It's just understanding that there is a limit, and uh, don't don't push that envelope, and the repercussions uh, may not be recoverable. A limit. All right. Final question, my favorite question of them all. You have heavy fire and searchable space. Would you rather be assigned to the nozzle or first in on VES? VES. <laughs> no hesitation. Like no, no. That, I mean, that's, you know, and again, it depends on how you're programmed and, and what you uh, have experienced, but you, you got to have the confidence. You got to have, you got to have that KSAs. You just have to know what needs to be done. And uh, yeah. That, that that's that that's definitely me. <laughs> right on. No, I love that answer. Max points on number five. You know, everybody knows my answer always is the same. Ves all day. James Mitchellisco agrees. He said all day. Max points. Great there answer. You go. <laughs> Search and rescue. Ding, ding, ding. Where's the bells and the buzzers? <laughs> that's what we need. Light it up. Uh, fire uh, Sam, my producer said he put it in quotation marks. There are some knuckleheads out there. Real lug nuts. Oh. Chris Nam quote. Chris Nam that's quote sure. right there. <laughs> And that with politically those correct guys, I'm trying to be politically correct, but I always talk about the lug nuts. You know, there there's so many of them out there, and oh man, either on the fire ground or in the classroom. So, like, really, you're 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 asking this question, or this is what you believe? Um, it's interesting. Never never a dull moment, that's for sure. <laughs> that's the best part, man. Never yeah. a dull moment. And with those answers, that officially makes it 191 scraps in the book. Cool. Chris, I cannot uh, say like we. I felt like we. Um, <laughs> just we just like, got started just a broad <laughs> brush man i mean it's so broad uh amazing evening if if someone wants to get a hold of you to reach out to you get more information book a class etc what's the best way to do so uh, just dm me do a quick google search uh, you can find me online and uh again we've got a ton of classes i don't want to make this uh self toot the horn type of thing but we're doing a lot of stuff out there just came back from fdic just like you chief i mean uh we did a class and did a couple of things that uh Oklahoma's uh, fire school just a couple of days ago. We're on our way to the Metro Atlanta Firefighters Conference uh, next week uh, up in, um, actually, I'll say this. Here, here's a cool thing for you guys. So again, it's since I since you've opened the door about some items. So number yeah. one, you can, get, you can get a hold of me online. Uh, you can get my emails, DM me, what have you on the social media. Uh, we've got a bunch of uh, websites and blogs that are going, that are dark right now buildingsonfire.com, readingthebuilding.com, firegroundleadership.com. These are all going to be going back up, hopefully uh, in a couple of months. Uh, we're retooling and uh, completely making all those over. We will have a direct portal for building construction-related insights, just a repository on the built environment that we are talking about, a whole bunch of resources and, and uh, informational nuggets. But I'll say this, for those of you that are trying to gain some insights, one of the things that my good friend and colleague that some of you may have heard uh, either online or in person at FDIC, uh, my good friend, Battalion Chief uh, Danny Sheraton uh, out of the 3rd Division in the Bronx, he and I do this really cool walking tour reading buildings in New York City. So we started mm -hmm. off pre-COVID. We did a class just a couple of months ago. We got another one coming up on June 10th. So if you're so inclined, uh, you can find uh, the information or I can send you the Eventbrite. But we're doing a full-day walking tour in Manhattan. It's about an eight-hour tour. We tried to consolidate it down from our original 12. But uh, we walk the streets of Manhattan looking at every different type of building types. We're looking primarily at 
taxpayers. We're looking at brick and joist constructed buildings, walk-ups all the way up to some high-rise buildings, pizza joint for lunch, FDNY, fire museum, the fire zone, and, and a lot of good camaraderie and everything in between. So oh, wow, yeah, we are offering that. That's sort of our Disneyland trip. So if you're so inclined to join us in New York City, um, all of the upfront costs are on your end uh, other than the registration side of it. And we are also bringing that same thing. I do reading the buildings programs around the United States on your street in your first due uh, doing walking tours. So we take the classroom, start off in a either in the street corner, but sometimes preferably do a couple of hour classroom on building construction, get everybody up to speed. And then we go down in your first due and take a look at buildings, do size up, talk about everything that we talked about here today. But in the streets of your first due to to gain that level of insight. So wow. that's a, a real cool thing that we're doing around the U.S. So let, let me know. No, that is that is really cool, man. Absolutely. And, and lastly, I mean, the other thing too, guys, reach out if you if you've got some insights and questions on these other things. Um, again, my my cell phone number is available online. Uh, my email addresses are available. Hit me up. We can do a, a direct online uh, Zoom conference phone call away. Just don't do. It. So I always say say this. I'm waiting for that one guy at two o'clock in the morning to call me up and say, "Hey, we've got this working fire. Wing. I need some insights on X, Y, Z." You know that's how we roll nowadays. But uh, again, if if you're trying to figure it all out, uh, I'm more than happy to talk with you guys one on one. So don't uh, hesitate from uh, dropping an email or uh, getting on the phone and uh, having a nice chat. So I love it, man. There you yeah. go. Reach out to him. Get it booked. Go to that freaking Disneyland tour. Of- <laughs> That'd be awesome. It's cool. We stop at the firehouses, and it's it's pretty cool. So, some good stuff that's out there, Chief. I really want to thank you for this opportunity. Uh, we we got to take a look at some other uh, topics, maybe talk about these tactical windows or something else down the road. So, keep no, that again, we, we left a lot on the we Love left a, we left a lot on the table. So, absolutely, yeah, we sure did. at some point in the future, uh, um, coming up on the scrap, Chris Namos tonight, next week, Bob Pressler, followed oh, by man. Jonah Smith, then cool. Jeff Eckert. So it's it's stacking up to be an yeah, unbelievable cool. May, unbelievable May. Uh, so everybody, um, join the vigilantes. Five bucks a month. I always say it's the price of a cup of coffee. Excuse me. You get to be a part of the Cool Kids Club. Go to firehousevigilance.com. dot com. You can sign up there. Uh, monthly meetings, exclusive swag, all of that stuff. Uh, the vigilante coin, all of those things. Uh, it's amazing. Uh, I got all that done. Thank you, my friend Chris Nam, for coming on and giving value to the fire service. Thanks, thank brother. You. Thanks, brother. Stay uh, safe, everybody. To the audience, uh, you guys are the ones that make it magical. Thank you for, as always, top-notch questions. I appreciate you. You're the ones who absolutely make the scrap what it is. Uh, with that being said, I hope the tone stays silent unless it is burning. Everybody, stay safe out there. Thanks for listening to the Weekly Scrap. Please subscribe and please share. We'll see you at the next episode.